Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. The, uh, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series uh, that we will be in for a good portion of the winter and the spring uh, of 2020. And we are going to be looking uh, over these next several weeks at the first 11 chapters of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, uh, in a series that we're calling Origins, uh, which is really what we have in those 11 chapters. Uh, those 11 chapters lay the foundation for so much of the rest of the story of the Bible. They lay so much of the foundation about how we think of the created world, how we think of the universe, how we think about God, so much about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be made in God's image, what it, made, what it means to approach our work as divinely given, what it means to be male and female, what it means uh, to inhabit different cultures and speak different languages. So much of uh, the worldview of the Bible is laid at a foundational level uh, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so I'm excited for all that we will see and learn uh, about God's plan for his creation, uh, about his plan for our lives and his plan for our world uh, in these chapters. And so if you're one of those people who has a hard time flipping and finding the reading in your Bible uh, every week, you are in luck this week. Uh, we are starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So start at the very first page of your Bible. Uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. As you know, uh, we live in an era of superhero movies. Right? It used to be that we made different kinds of movies, but now uh, nearly every movie is a superhero movie. Uh, As soon as one set of movies ends, they start over again. I remember uh, there was a Spider-Man movie when I was in college, and then there was another Spider-Man that started shortly thereafter, and then I think we're on now to the third Spider-Man of the last 10 years. Every one of these superhero movies starts the same way. At this point, I have seen poor little Bruce Wayne's parents killed Uh, three or four times. I have seen Peter Parker get bitten uh, by three or four radioactive spiders. Uh, I've seen uh, the comet land in an Iowa cornfield uh, with the baby Superman in it uh, multiple times now. Why uh, do we start all of these stories in the same place? We start all of these stories with the origin story of the hero. Because without a compelling origin story, you're left to wonder why Right? Why is this angry rich guy uh, driving around in a fancy car and hurting everybody? Uh, why can this kid shoot spider webs out of his hands? 
What's the, what's the point of the world? Why is this person there? What are they doing in the world? And the fact is that we all uh, need to know our origin story. We need to know who we are and how we got here, what gifts we possess. We need to understand how to make sense out of the world that we've been given, the mission that we're called to in that world. And God gave Israel, uh, and through them is given to us, an origin story. Now, remember, the people of Israel would have received uh, this story, these foundational stories in Genesis chapter 1 and beyond. They would have received this uh, having been redeemed out of Egypt. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. God miraculously intervened through the plagues and through these other means. He led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness through the land towards the land of his promise. And on their way, on their way through there, he's disclosing himself to them. He's helping them to learn who he is and what he wants for them. And he's showing them here that the God who redeemed them is the one creator God. And he's giving them a way to understand the world around them, to understand who he is and who they are. Now, we bring all kinds of questions uh, to the first chapters of Genesis, right? We bring all of our contemporary modern questions about things like uh, the origin of species and the age of the earth and all of these different questions uh, that we bring to the first chapters of Genesis. But we have to, if we're going to understand it rightly, uh, realize that those were not the questions that Israel would have brought to these chapters, Right? The Genesis account is written to help Israel make sense of their world. Right? It's not written as a contemporary science book. It's written as a counter-narrative to the predominant narratives that Israel would have grown up around. Right? The kinds of questions Israel was asking wasn't about the age of the earth, but it was, hey, did the earth, was the earth really formed when the sun god Ra took his eye and made the earth out of it and then put Pharaoh in charge of it? Is that where we came from? like the Egyptians believed? Or maybe, uh, is the world really the result of a cosmic war between the gods? When uh, the god Marduk uh, took the sea monster Tamil and ripped it in half and made half of it into the land and half of it into the sea, because that's what the Babylonians believed. Right, so this is, the, the account of Genesis is written to them, Go, or, or is it those gods that made the earth, or is it another god that made the earth? Was the world born out of chaos and, and warfare among the gods, or was it born some other way? Where did this world come from, and where do we come from? So let's start uh, at the beginning, as the Bible does. In the beginning, God. You know, we want to move on beyond this to some of our bigger questions. But we can skim right past these first four words, which really set the stage for the worldview of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Right? There was a time uh, in eternity past when there was only God. There was only God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly fulfilled, per perfectly living and existing in glory and love for one another. That before there was anything else, there was God. The Bible divides up, essentially, there's two kinds of things in the world. There's God, and then there's everything else. 
There's God, and then there's all the stuff and beings and people that are not God. Everything else that exists in this world, everything exists solely because of God. Because of God's choice, because of God's initiative, because of God's love, because of God's creativity. That the source and ground of everything that's not God is found in God's self. There's God, and then there's everything that's not God. And we, you and I, every one of us, uh, belongs firmly on the not God side of the equation. Right? There is a God, and you are not him. I am not him. There is a God who is all-powerful and created all things, who orders the world completely and totally by his own will, and that doesn't get to be me. And on the one hand, you think, obviously, Dave, obviously I'm not God. Obviously you're not God. But is it really that obvious? Uh, because I think most of us live most of our lives as though we are gods, uh, as though everything that we most long for and desire in our lives is within, within our control, that we can map our own lives, that we can choose our own destiny, that we can chart our own course. This is why Bill Wilson, uh, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, said that he believed that it was uh, this belief that we are God that undergirds every addiction that men and women are plagued with. In the big book, he writes this, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was to be our director. He is the principal and we are the agents. He is the father and we are his children. To recognize that we are not God is the first step towards sanity. It's the first step towards taking our proper place in this world. Recognizing that we have limits. We can't control everything about our lives. We can't get all of the outcomes that we want. We don't get to chart our own course completely through this world. We are not God. And on the one hand, uh, that feels like it would be bad news, right? You're telling me that I don't have control over my life. You're telling me that I don't have power over my world. But think of how liberating it is to realize, to find your proper place in the big picture and to recognize that you are not God, right? Think about the sources of anxiety in your life, the things that you worry about that you have absolutely no control over. Right? We worry about our health. We worry about our children. We worry about our families. We worry about our jobs. And you go, well, yeah, I've got some control over my health. Yeah, some. I've got some control over my job. Some. But in all of that, there's powers that are beyond you. You've got a boss beyond you. You've got a body that will get sick and break down at some point, no matter how healthy you eat and how much you exercise. There are outcomes in the world that we spend our lives worrying about that we cannot create and we cannot maintain because we are not God. You know, I think the greatest creation myth in our world that Genesis chapter 1 corrects is not evolution, but it's our stubborn belief that we get to chart our own course through life. It's our stubborn belief that our job is to self-actualize, 
to create our own destiny, to create our own worlds, to live our true self, to find our own fulfillment. When Genesis says, no, 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 in the beginning there was God, and he made this world, and he set it to order, and he set certain limits in your life, and he designed a life for you. And Genesis urges us to take our proper posture as a creator, I mean, as a creature, and not a creator. Right? When Job begins to question God's, uh, to question God's authorship of his life, to question the limits that God had set for him and the suffering that he had entailed. God essentially answers him with, were you there when I made the world? Were you there when I set the earth's foundations? Were you there when I spoke and said, let there be light? Because if you weren't, then trust me. If you weren't, then don't question me. Because there's a power beyond your power. There's a life that's bigger than your life. In the beginning, there was God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a, a, an idiom. It's a, it's a way of speaking that says that God created everything that is. The heavens and the earth. This is a, a, a parallel way of saying he created uh, what is big and high and heavenly, and he created what's low and earthly. That he created the beginning, he created the end, he created the sky, and he created the earth. He created everything. That God created the heavens and the earth. And here we see that the Bible uh, fundamentally starts uh, at a different place than any contemporary scientific account of the creation of the world or how the world came to be. Right? You're not likely, you likely didn't pick up your seventh grade history book and read something like, in the beginning, God. Right? Because science is primarily concerned with questions of how, questions of process, how things came to be, how things continue to function. It's rooted in the observable, the measurable. Science is primarily concerned with the questions of how. And the Bible begins with a much deeper and bigger question. Not the question of how, but the question of who and the question of why. Right? It starts back before how and gets back to why is there anything in a world where there might as well have been nothing at all, when existence was not guaranteed, where we could just live in an eternal nothingness, no matter, no energy, no none of it. Why is there anything when there might as easily have been nothing? Why do we exist? Why do we have consciousness? Why is there life at all? It's because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who? God. Why? We're going to see throughout this account the driving plan of God in his story. One of the great myths of our day, and I run into it uh, talking to people all over the place, is that somehow science and faith are incompatible, right? That if on the one hand you want to be serious about studying the world, if you want to be serious about science, then you have to check your faith at the door because we all know that science is disproven religion. Or on the other hand, that if you're going to be a person of faith, if you're going to seek to live your life uh, by the light of faith, then you have to kind of turn off your mind uh, when it comes to science, when it comes to the observation and exploration of the world around us. That faith 
and science or somehow intention. But if we remember, if we remember that if science is primarily concerned with the question of how, and faith is primarily concerned with the questions of who and why, right? that means that we shouldn't come to an ancient origin story like this one, one that predates modern science by millennia, and expect to find the kind of stuff you would find in a modern science book. We don't go to it for all of our questions of how. We might wish that it gave us more than it does on how. But nor should we approach science and expect it to answer those deepest questions of the human heart about why, about who made us, about why we exist, about where we find meaning and belonging and purpose and love in this world. It's often assumed that faith and science have forever been at odds with one another. And this could not be further from the truth. For most of the history of Christianity, for most of the history of Christianity, the assumption was, the assumption was that, that God's word and God's world both revealed the same God in different ways. Right? John Calvin called the created world a theater for God's glory. That, you know, not just when you look at the big things and look at the mountains and the seas and they talk about God's glory. But when you study the cells, when you, when you get down into the diversity of God's creation, when you study the flora and the fauna, when you study all of it, it all speaks of the glory of God. That God reveals himself through his world, and he reveals himself through his word. Now, there might be times when it appears to us that science and faith are in contradiction to one another. But that's because our knowledge is ever limited, right? We only will ever bring our limited understanding to our study of God's world and our study of God's word, right? Science is the study of God's world. Theology is the study of God's word. Our study of both of those things are deeply fallible, right? There was a, we always are open to correction, as we discover more about the way the world works and as we discover more about what God's word reveals. There were to hold our suppositions loosely and constantly submit ourselves to God's, world, uh, to God's word as we come to understand more and more about ourselves in his world. Science and faith need not be intention. I was shocked uh, on visiting London a number of years ago to find that Charles Darwin is buried in Westminster Abbey. You can visit uh, Darwin's grave in, in Westminster Abbey, the seat of the Church of England. And this was done, he was buried there as a testament to the fact, an effort to show that faith has nothing to fear in science, that faith doesn't have to turn a blind eye towards science, but can embrace it and can include it. St. Augustine, one of the early fathers of the church, who himself believed that the earth came to be in an instant, uh, in a kind of a big bang, he wrote this in his commentary on Genesis. In matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. 
You hear what he's saying? We shouldn't take our certainties as such certainties that our entire faith, our entire way of approaching the world falls if it falls. We should hold these things somewhat loosely. And so, we come to this passage. We're just looking at the first three verses today. Uh, Brother Willie is going to have next week to go through the rest of Genesis 1 for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, But one of the things that we find as we look at both contemporary accounts of origins and ancient accounts of origins, right? If you compare what you might learn in a contemporary science textbook from what the Israelites learned from their Babylonian neighbors and their Egyptian captors, right? There is a commonality. Although those, those two different creation stories are separated by eons, so they're separated by an entirely different worldview, there's one major area of overlap. Contemporary science often will tell us that we exist largely out of chaos and chance. Right, that this world way back in the primordial ooze uh, gave birth to life, and that life took shape largely through chaos, violence, and chance. That it was a tooth and claw competition to see what species would make it, who would evolve, who would die out. That it was unsupervised by a sovereign God, and that it was left largely, again, as chaos, violence, and chance. Most of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors would have said the same thing. The Babylonians, uh, as we've hinted at earlier, uh, the Enuma Elish is their creation story. It's one of the best preserved of the contemporary sources that we have. And their belief was that all of the gods existed uh, before the creation of the world, and they were in constant battle, constant violence. And then Marduk, one of the gods, uh, went to oppose this giant, nasty, evil sea monster deity, named Tiamat, and in this war and this violence, it tore it apart, and all of life grew up out of this sea monster's body. You go, man, that is a crazy thing to believe. But it does still believe, doesn't it, that the world's origins are in chaos, violence, and survival. Into that world, these words would have seemed just as strange and out of place as they do in a contemporary account. Because in this account, uh, there is no battle, there is no violence, there is no cosmic battle against the chaos. There's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a God creating the world solely out of his divine power and will and might. There's no competition for kingship, there's no competition for who the true God is. There's a royal God, a royal king, ordering his creation. There is still chaos in this story. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. This may be uh, my favorite bit of Hebrew in the Bible, where it says that the earth was formless and void. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew. The Hebrew here is tohu wabohu. Isn't that a great sounding word? Tohu wabohu. Formless. It's without shape. It's without structure. It's without order. And it's empty, it's without filling, it's without content. So it's both without shape and without content. Tohu, wabohu. God brings, the entire first chapter of Genesis, is God bringing structure where there was none. 
right? Separating is going to be the, the language of the first chapter. He separates the sea from the dry land. He separates the day from the night. He separates the waters above from the waters below. He corrects the formlessness of the world. And then he fills the emptiness of the world, filling it with the stars in the sky, filling it with the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the vegetation of the earth. And then is the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve, you and me. The story of Genesis 1 is the story of God working to bring fullness to emptiness and order to chaos. And he does that not in a battle, not in having to subdue it. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's Spirit over the chaos, hovering over it, giving it shape, bringing it into order. He does it by his Spirit. And he does it by his word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That refrain is going to play out over and over again through the chapter. God said, and then it was. He creates the world through his spirit and by his word. He creates the world as its king, as its Lord. Remember we've said that this book, Genesis, would have been revealed to Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, as they got to know the God who had set them free from Egypt. To understand any book, to understand any work of literature, we have to ask, what is the intent behind it? Why was it written? And to understand this, we have to understand the reason this was written was to tell Israel that their Redeemer is the Creator, and the Creator is their Redeemer. That the God who rescued them is the God who made all things. The Spirit who blew over the waters of the Red Sea and divided it so they could walk through on dry land is the Spirit that hovered over the waters at creation. The Word that spoke to them, the Ten Commandments, that made with them a covenant is the same voice that spoke the world into being. It's the same Word. It's the same Spirit. Their Redeemer is the creator of all things. When the New Testament authors, take, uh, when they tap into the creation story, their reason of doing it over and over again is the same reason. It's to point the early Christians to the fact that their Redeemer is their creator. It's John in the first chapter of the Gospel of John saying, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. Right? Jesus is the creator. The one who redeemed you is the one who made you. Paul in Colossians, saying that he is the firstborn over all creation. Nothing has been made that was not made by him. Your Redeemer, the one dying on the cross for you, is the one who made you. The hands that were scarred by the nails are the same hands that shaped the stars in the heavens and the mountains and the seas and everything in them. Your Creator is your Redeemer. Because He created you, He has the power to save you. Because He saves you, you know that the Creator, the force behind the universe, is not against us. He's not out to get us. He certainly hasn't made the, wor the world and then left us to it to figure ourselves out. He entered into this world in love to save us. We've said that Genesis 1 is about who, who made us, God, and why. 
He made us for himself. He made us so that he would know us and that we would know him, that we would find our life in him. In the entire story of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation 22, tells the same story, the story of God bringing order and fullness and life by his spirit and by his word out of the chaos of our lives. Right, Just as he brought order and fullness to the creation, he can bring order and fullness to our lives. He can remake our lives into his beautiful image. I love the way that Revelation takes up so much of the same story. The author of Revelation uh, wants to draw our attention to the fact that he's bookending Genesis with his work. That the God who started creation will see it through to its completion. If you look at Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Right, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and earth. Genesis, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It keys us in that he's picking up that same story. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There are accounts of our world that tell you that this world started in chaos and fire, and that it will end one day in chaos and fire. The scriptures tell us something different, that you began in God, that everything you see has its origin in the heart and mind of God. You began in God, and God is our end. You end in God. The dwelling place of God will be with man, and the dwelling place of man with God. Formed out of God, formed out of his creative will and his love, destined to be returned to him, your life doesn't begin and end in chaos. It begins and ends in God. And if your origin story is in God himself, and if your destiny is in God himself, then that means that the single most important thing about your life today is your dwelling with God, dwelling in communion with him. You know, we are at the beginning of the year, a time uh, when we make promises to ourselves that we will break. Uh, that is, you know, what we do with New Year's resolutions. You might have a, a promise to, to get in shape this year, to read your Bible more this year. I don't know what your goals are for the year. There's nothing wrong with goals. But those goals, your ambitions for your life, should flow out of where you come from. The God who loves you, the God who made you, the God who desires you. And they should contribute to where you're going. A life made for God that finds its ultimate home and will find its ultimate fulfillment in God. Therefore, the, mo the most important thing about you today isn't what the scale says when you get on it tomorrow. Uh, it's not how you did it, whatever attempts at self-discipline you have planned for the year. It's the God who came to dwell with you, you going and dwelling with him by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made us for yourself. 
We thank you that we weren't birthed without a plan, that we didn't come to be solely through chance or survival. Lord, but that we were birthed by your intent, that we were formed in the womb by your wisdom, by your magisterial divine design. Lord, there is so much about this world and our place in it that seems a mystery to us. There's so much about the way that your world works and the way that it holds together that seems so unclear. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to bring our limited selves into submission to your omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing self. That we would trust you with the parts of this world that we don't understand. That we would grow in our understanding as we study your word and study your world. But Lord, above all these things, we ask that you would help us to know ourselves as people made for you, made by you, and made for you. That we would find our home in you. That we would find our glory in your glory. That we would find our life in your life. Lord, your spirit hovered over the darkness and the chaos and brought it to order. Lord, some of us feel uh, now the darkness and chaos of our lives. We ask for your spirit's ordering work in us, that you would bring life and beauty and goodness out of the darkness and disorder of our lives, that the God who created us would recreate us uh, in his love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.